a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I hope you're ready to engage in some serious wrong think because I've got Eric Peters joining me today. Hey, Eric, how are things? I'm good, Brian. Amazingly, I'm still alive, and that's probably because I haven't gotten the holy needle yet and don't intend to. Man, I'll tell you, the, you the, okay, I'm trying hard not to be condescending here, but this is still going to yeah. come off as, as I'm feeling snooty, but people are really proud about uh, their vaccinations. I mean, really proud. Well, it's odd psychologically. You know, this whole this whole wearing of your sleeve about your medical status and, and the conditions that you have. Do you remember when it used to be only old people who talked about their hip replacement surgeries oh, yeah. and their meds? And I mean, now this seems to be the topic of conversation. And, 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 and not only that, as you say, it's a kind of a virtue signaling thing, as with the wearing of the holy rag. You know, it's, it's if I'm doing my part by allowing myself to be guinea pigged and injected with this substance that it turns out is actually beginning to kill people, you know? And, of course, we don't hear about the cases, the cases uh, of this happening, and more specifically that it's happening to a lot of young and healthy people. I was just reading something this morning um, about in the military, people uh, under 30 who have had the jab and are getting, um, I forgot the medical uh, term for the condition, but it's heart inflammation. It's myocarditis, maybe, maybe that's the correct term. But at any rate, these were fit, healthy young people. And uh, coincident to getting this this holy needling, all of a sudden they've got heart problems. Unreal, and and you know the the psychological um, pressure behind getting people to to vaccinate. I mean, you know, look at the the um, list of companies. I, I can't remember. I think it was the New York Times printed a list of companies. Hey, these are the companies that offer you free things if you show proof yeah. of your vaccination. That's right, and they're touting not only the free thing, but safe and effective. That's the, uh, that's the terminology being used in these PSAs that you see on the TV, if you dare to turn the thing on. And that's outrageous, because they're not, they're not safe and effective. Uh, in fact, we don't know what they are, because they've not been tested on people. We don't have the control group, the placebo group. We don't have a track record of, well, what happens six months or a year after you take this stuff? So for them to say safe and effective is, is really, it's murderously despicable given the fact that people actually are dying from this supposedly safe and effective vaccine. By the way, the answer I have been giving people when they ask me, have you got the vaccine yet? I tell them I'm part of the control group. Yes, I, actually I saw that. And there's a, there's a little patch you can get, also t-shirts. I think that's hilarious. I need to get myself one. By the way, there is a phrase that has popped up. I just, I just saw this in an article uh, from offguardian.org uh, from Sinead Murphy. And there, apparently in Europe, there is a new key phrase that has become the mantra to get people to, to you know, get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Nobody is safe until everyone is safe. Right. More shaming. And again, it's outrageous when you stop to reflect that uh, this virus has a 99.8 something percent recovery rate for most healthy people. So this idea that 100% of the healthy population must subject themselves to uh, an experimental medical treatment is crazy. It's crazy. It's sick. It's sick in the Dr. Mengele sense. 
Well, I, I'm grateful for, for people like yourself who uh, will resist and, and, and publicly you know, say, this is, this is why I'm not going to do it. You had an excellent article uh, called Jab Hands, and the yeah. image just jumped out at me of the guy from the Heaven's Gate cult explaining you know, the, the initiation process. And, and it's like, it is. It's like, like you're being invited. Become a part of our cult. Yes, and, and being invited and being shamed if you're not. If you watch, I embedded a little video of the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult, which millennials probably won't remember because they're too young for it, but it's still worth going back and, and studying that, and also the, the Jim Jones cult um, of the 70s, because the psychology behind it is similar. It's all apocalyptic. It's all driven by fear and this injunction that you must do what the leader of the cult says. In this case, the leader of the cult, of course, is Pope Fauci the 17th, as I like to call him. And I, I use that terminology because he's a religious figure at this point. He's proselytizing to people. He's not a scientist. He's not purveying facts and evidence. He is, uh, he is, he is trying to tell people they have to obey the faith as he promulgates it unquestioningly. And if they don't, somehow they're bad people. Yeah, well, I, I think everybody has to make that decision for themselves. I'm not going to, you know, condemn the people who choose to do it, but I'm really getting tired of the coercion, and, and I know a lot of others are as well. Well, I'm tired of it, and I'm also angry about it. Now, this is anecdotal, but my sister has a high school friend whose mom uh, got the, uh, the holy needling, and within 48 hours she had a stroke um, from a blood clot, apparently. And uh, I'm, I'm getting emails from readers from all over the country who are relating similar stories. This is happening. It's real. Uh, they, the fact is that it's bad enough that they had to, as they use the word pause, the J&J vaccine. And you know if they're doing that, that the, 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 the numbers are, actually, are probably much more serious than are being publicly acknowledged. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an atrocity. It's outrageous. Well, here's to the people who have the courage to uh, remain part of the control group. It's it's chilling, though. Europe just announced, didn't they, that uh, no one will be allowed to travel to Europe unless they can show their vaccine passport and proof of vaccination. Yeah, that's been the agenda from the get-go. It is why, for the past year, I've been so adamant about uh, resisting the face diapering regime. Um, I, You and I have talked about it many times. I, I put forward the argument that if you get people to put on this face diaper en masse, you have set the predicate for forcing people to get jabbed en masse. And that's the end game. It's always been the end game. Uh, and if you go, dig deep into the literature behind all of this, you know, the people who are pushing all of this, they were talking about it a year ago. You know, so it's not a surprise. This is all deliberate. It's part of an organized, systematic effort. And you have to ask, well, what are they up to? Why is it that they want to have the healthy population subject themselves to an experimental medical procedure. What could be the purpose behind that? I've seen some potential answers, and I mean, some of them may be, you know, full-blown conspiracy theories. Some of them are pretty far mm -hmm. out there, but the bottom line is someone wants to substitute their judgment for my own, and they're willing right. to coerce me in order to make that happen, and I, I cannot abide that. No, and it's an interesting juxtaposition in that here we live in a culture that is obsessed with safety and which is almost pathologically risk-averse for the most part when it comes to so many things. The safety cult, I talk about this all the time in my articles and on the air. And yet here we have something that has demonstrable risk for healthy people, arguably a risk that is greater for healthy people than the relatively trivial risk of this virus. And yet people are very blasé about it. They're very, you know, they're not even, that's not the right word. They're eager, as we were talking about earlier, to get in line and then, uh, and then posture and preen and, and be admired for the fact 
that they subjected themselves to an experimental treatment for a vac- for a virus that poses almost no threat to them. So what's what's the situation as far as masks where where you live? Well, it's it's status quo. It's been this way now for several months. Technically, there is still the the mandate to wear them within public spaces, but it's not generally enforced. I've been able to go to my local Kroger supermarket almost every day and show my face. However, the social pressure remains. You know, I go in there and I'd say probably 99% of the people are walking around with their face diapers on. And it's a, it's just, it's, it's a very twilight zone kind of a feeling, as though you're in some kind of a weird black and white horror movie. Um, it just shows the effect of peer pressure on people. Well, I, I was relating to you off the air before before we started. I, I had the chance to travel to rural Idaho um, this last week and was was amazed at the number of people who aren't wearing masks. In fact, seeing yep. masks was was a rarity. And the, the people who were wearing them, for the, I, I guess it's because they were, were hopelessly outnumbered. Mm-hmm. They, they were very polite. Nobody was giving the yep. stink eye. But yep. uh, it sure felt like a return to, to more normal times. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that... That's restorative. If anybody who is feeling down about what's going on needs to feel a little bit better, I encourage them to jump in their car and take a road trip to a, a more rural and uh, perhaps red part of the country where you can not only see but be back immersed in normalcy. You can uh, shake hands with people, you can smile, you can talk to people, and they don't freak out like the weaponized hypochondriacs that you find in the more urban areas, who I think probably are that way because they're absolutely glued to CNN and NPR all day, yep. whereas people who live out in more rural areas actually have work to do outside and don't watch the TV all day. And the flip side of that coin was I had a couple friends in Boston last week who said that was by far the most aggressive mask enforcement uh, mindset they had ever encountered. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, so much as if it dipped below your nose, people would get in your face and start correcting you immediately. Well, sure, sure. And, and you know, as somebody who lives in the rural South, that that attitude is often referred to as the Yankee attitude, and it, it really isn't geographical. I myself was not born in the South. You and I were talking a little bit about this off the air, but I, uh, I moved from the area where I was born in the North to the South because I'm, I'm culturally and philosophically simpatico with the Southern attitude, which is a more live-and-let-live uh, kind of an attitude, whereas up North these Yankees are suffused with this puritanical, and Massachusetts is where the Puritans were, uh, this puritanical zeal to make sure that everybody does what they consider to be right. You know, they're the arbiters of morality. we got to take a quick break. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, among the topics Mm -hmm. I wanted to cover with you today, you had a very interesting article on bicycle licensing. Mm -hmm. And you make a very solid point here. Uh, Just about every way that we get around has been licensed. But bicycles Mm -hmm. so far, you know, knock on wood, have have been left alone uh, from requiring a government permission slip. Mm -hmm. Is is there a trend? Are are you seeing uh, some some waves to to start licensing bicycles? Well, I see it as an inevitability. Uh, Bicycling remains pretty much the last bastion of free mobility other than walking. 
um, in that you can go out and buy a bike and the government doesn't mandate how that bike must be made. You don't have to put a license plate on your bicycle. You don't have to have a bicycle license to ride the bicycle. Uh, and you don't have to carry insurance on the bicycle. But if you think about it as a logical matter, and based on the precedents that have been set with regard to cars and motorcycles, it's only a matter of time before some Karen or some politician who's looking for a, a tub to thump says, wow, we can't have people riding bicycles without licenses and pr proving they can safely ride. And they've got to have tags on them so that we can identify them when they, when they run a stoplight. And, oh, we can't have them without insurance because, oh, somebody could get hurt. You know, all the same stuff that has been applied to cars, logically, it applies just the same to bicycles. So I foresee a time when that sort of thing is going to happen, unfortunately. Well, you point out in the article, people who seek control always need a little bit more. They've got to get that fix until they have total control. Absolutely. This is not about the libertarian standard of harm caused. I've, I've written and talked for years about the whole thing with insurance, with forcing people to buy insurance. It's predicated on this idea that you, and not even you, just that someone might wreck and cause harm. Not the fact that anybody has car caused harm, but that somebody might. So if you're going to take that as the basis for your argument, I can run over somebody on a bicycle. You know, I mean, I can run into a car on a bicycle and cause damage, uh, why should the bicyclist be able to, as they put it, get away with that? No, it, it's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Just, just another thing that's about to be converted, you know, from, from a right into a privilege. Yeah, also, I think, too, that so many people are getting tired of the hassle and the expense of dealing with cars, particularly younger people. They're turning to bicycles because, you know, it allows them to get around in a way that's inexpensive and still fun because it's not micromanaged. So I think that the more uh, the, more the numbers of people who, who do ride increase, the more likely it is that at some point uh, some Karen or politician is going to come out with the, the, the pitch, the proposal. And that's why it's important to argue against all of this stuff on a foundational principle basis and say, look, People have a right to get around without being presumed guilty of things. They have a right uh, to not have to pay, uh, pay it forward, so to speak, by uh, buying insurance when they haven't hurt anybody. Now, look, if somebody does run into you, somebody causes a problem, by all means, that person should be held responsible for what they do. But please stop holding people responsible for harms they haven't caused. Amen. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Hey, speaking of harms that haven't been caused yet, you also had a great article about radar detectors. Mm -hmm. and, and I know for some people, there's, oh, great, you guys are irresponsible leadfoots who uh -huh. want to talk about how fun it is to speed. But there's, there's a very practical consideration you point out here. Why does it make sense for a person to have a radar detector? Well, it's a countermeasure against, again, unjust and tyrannical laws. Everybody except the most zealous and fervent Karen speeds a little bit meaning and that's a you know that's a pejorative that's that's meant to shame us all it means is that you're you're driving your vehicles faster even if only by one mile an hour than whatever the number is that's arbitrarily posted on the sign and almost all of us know that almost all speed limits are under posted and that is why almost everybody drives a bit faster than the posted speed limit but that makes us vulnerable to an extortion note the thing they call a ticket and not only that if you get this ticket uh, it's only a matter of time before your insurance company sends you something in the mail that, as they use as they use the term, adjusts what you're forced to pay them upward. 
So the radar detector is a countermeasure against that. It's something that alerts you to the presence of police radars so that you can avoid it. It's not foolproof, of course, but let's say that it cuts your, your chances of getting a, a ticket by 50%. It's well worth the expense, not just because you're going to save the money of the ticket, but you're going to save the money that you would otherwise pay for the adjusted insurance premium. And isn't it curious, I think your, your home state of Virginia, I believe, actually makes it illegal to have a radar That's detector. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? I live in the one state in the entire country where they're illegal. However, that actually works to my benefit because uh, the cops assume that most people, correctly, are good law-abiding drones who just do what they're told. So they're more lazy with their radar traps. Um, and that makes it easier for me to, as a air quotes, get away with using the radar detector. In other states, cops tend to use um, what's called instant-on radar, which means they hit you with it. Uh, before the, before you have a chance to really react to it more commonly. However, if you have a radar detector, uh, it will detect that if you're not the lead car in line. And and my, my number one axiom for driving faster than the speed limit is to never be alone on the road when you do it and to never be the lead car when you do it. Let somebody else be the rabbit. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Well, I know that uh, you you actually have a great sponsor um, that, that happens to yep. sell a very, very high-quality radar detector. Uh, talk yep. to us about it. Yeah, Valentine One, which uh, many people will recognize uh, the name, has been making uh, the best, and I say that because it's been proved to be the best radar detector for decades, and they just came out with what they call their Gen 2 unit, um, which is specifically designed to design to deal with the new problem of all of these false radar signals being emitted by modern cars with all of their safety systems, which use razor, uh, radar and laser. And if you have an older detector or if you have a lower quality one that can't filter out the, the junk signals, the thing's going to be beeping at you all the time, and that's no good. You know, it's annoying, plus you won't be able to tell which is the, which is the fake signal and which is the real one. Uh, the V1 does a really good job of only going off when it's actually police radar. Okay. This is good to know. Actually, I have a, I have a really good friend here in Utah who is an unrepentant lead foot. Now, he's a responsible guy, but um, he also has a lot to do, and so he's usually trying to get mm -hmm. where he's going and be productive, get smoothly and efficiently through traffic. And yep. uh, I noticed his life changed for the better the day that he got a radar detector. And he just says, you know, I, he goes, I try, to, I, try not to be, um, I try not to be unkind towards police, but before he says I got that radar detector, I disliked cops a lot more. Absolutely. No question. And, you know, I, I, I'll say this, I'll, pre I'll preface what I'm going to say with this. Uh, I, you know, the cops are in a bad position. They're, you know, they're, they, most of them probably want to spend their time going after the dirt bags. you know, people who are uh, causing damage to property, people who are attacking other people, you know, criminals. They don't want to sit there by the side of the road giving you a ticket for going eight miles an hour over an arbitrary speed limit. So they're kind of in a bad position there. But nonetheless, we're still vulnerable to this. And with that detector, driving becomes enjoyable. Again, the stress factor goes down. And it's not just enjoyable, it's safer because instead of being paranoid about police and worrying about having to jam on your brakes, you know, you can drive more smoothly. And smoothly is always safer. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're down to the last minute here. Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts on uh, any, any automotive uh, news that, uh, that we should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, you might have been following the latest gushy, uh, uh, effusive coverage of Tesla and its supposed earnings. And I just, pushed, I just published about an hour ago an article that dissects that a little bit. 
and uh, points out what almost nobody else is pointing out, which is that the majority of what Tesla earns, and I put that in finger quotes again, mm-hmm. is from these obnoxious carbon credits and, and, and zero emissions credits that it scamily forces other people to pay in order to prop up its business, which does not make any money selling cars. It makes money rent-seeking using the government and all of this crony capitalist climate change zero emissions stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, by the way, that friend who got the radar detector that I was talking about just bought a Tesla mm-hmm. Model 3, so um, yeah, he's he's kind of a fan of, of what Elon's doing, but I did see yeah. your article uh, go up. I will have a link to your website in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Eric Peters, great to talk with you mm-hmm. as always. Keep the faith, my friend. I will. You too, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. So, you know, as far as priorities in life, I've looked around recently and realized, you know what? Pop culture is pretty far down the list of things that I care about. If I could illustrate this, deep in the uh, deep in the in the backwoods of Arkansas, there is a very very deep cave. In this cave is a stream, a river, if you will, and there's a species of blind fish that uh, can be found. I mean, they are deep underground. They have never seen daylight. They are absolutely utterly blind. And somehow those fish care more about who won the Academy Awards this week than I do. There, that should should put it into perspective. No, having said that, you know, I, I don't care much about pop culture, but I was very interested in seeing how, uh, since, since Hollywood became woke, and by that I mean since Hollywood really started to just saturate everything it produces, in the latest social justice jargon or just sometimes flat-out Marxist talking points. It's been very interesting to see how their audience has slowly started to, uh, you know, slip away. I mean, it's not like they've run at a dead run for the doors, but you look around, and, and I mean, the, the ratings for the Oscars earlier this week on Sunday, you could have fit uh, that audience probably in a large phone booth. That's, that's how bad it is. I want to share with you an article here from Bobby Burak. This is from Outkick.com. Oscar ratings tank massively. And he has a moment to gloat here. He says, just as we predicted, the 93rd Academy Awards tanked to unimaginable lows. Now, here are some numbers to back that up and just put this into perspective. The 2021 Oscars fell more than 50% year over year in overnight ratings. So here are what the last three years were. These are, these are the ratings percentages. This year, 8.9. Let's see. Let me see if I got this. 8.9 of, uh, of 19. 2020, it was 18.1 of 33. 2019, 21.6 of 36. Now, according to The Hollywood Reporter, what this means is the Oscars on Sunday drew 9.85 million viewers. That's down 58% from last year's 23.64 million viewers. That is a pretty significant drop, right? 
from 23.64, the previous all-time low, by the way, last year. <laughs> so they they set a new record decisively, and uh, that was on top of last year's big record. The 93rd Academy Awards drew 9.85 million viewers, a 1.9 rating among adults 18 to 49 on Sunday. Now, that's a pretty steep drop from last year's 23.64 million viewers, a 5.3 in the CAD, in the key ad demographic, both of which were the previous all-time lows. Now, the previous 58 or the uh, 58% decline, rather, in total viewers is keeping it with those in with the, the decline that we've also seen in award shows like the Grammys. That fell 51%. Golden Globes down 62%. SAG Awards 52% in recent months. And in the 18 to 49 demo, Oscars were down by 64%, also in line with other shows. Award shows, I should say. Last week, an Oscars producer who spoke on the condition of anonymity told the New York Times that data found that minute-by-minute post-show ratings analysis indicated vast swaths of people turned off their televisions when celebrities started to opine on politics. Imagine that. Here we were thinking they were there to entertain us, but no, they were there to convey the latest woke talking points, and people were getting turned off like it was a cold shower. Now, of course, this year was no different, the article says, with uh, Hollywood elites injecting progressive politics into as many lines as possible. Regina King, who directed this year's Oscar-nominated film One Night in Miami, used her stage time to tell the world, or at least those few who were watching, that if Derek Chauvin hadn't been convicted on all three counts, she would have traded in her heels for marching boots. How's that? Wow. The point is, as Bobby Burke points out, that uh, award shows are already hemorrhaging viewers. Between cord cutting and industry nominating films that no normal human would spend a dime to watch, ratings for the Oscars crashed 44% between 2014 and 2020. Hollywood isn't exactly a brand that can afford to tell half the country that it's racist. Yet it does so anyway. A ratings collapse, he says, expected but still staggering to see in print. Yeah, I would I would have to agree. Look, I, I want you to know, I don't spend time hating on Hollywood. I don't spend time, oh man, just sitting there and grumbling to myself how how awful they must be. In fact, I, I try to limit as much as I can whatever Hollywood is putting out. Um, I do enjoy some TV shows. I find myself watching old stuff, you know. For, for me, the Beverly Hillbillies actually, you know, scratches all the right itches without, uh, you know, feeling the need to lecture me on what I should be thinking and how I should be feeling ashamed about every aspect of my privileged life. Yeah. But like a lot of people, I too, I'm, I'm sick of being lectured to. I just, I don't have time for it. And so I give it a very low priority. Now, this doesn't mean I'm looking down on anybody who, who enjoys, you know, the entertainment industry. There are a lot of folks who still find value in it, and and for them, I say, good for you. We all have our priorities. I have just decided to place my attention on things that bring more value to my life. But it's telling that, uh, that as Hollywood becomes more woke, their audience is beginning to desert them. I mean, it's almost as if, by some quirk of human nature, people don't like being lectured, or having their nose rubbed on the carpet like a naughty puppy, you know, with with whatever the latest social justice twaddle is, you know, for the moment. It's disturbing how cancel culture has has taken hold and how how wokeness is is used to virtue signal, you know, and it's it's crazy to see how it has taken over at the corporate level. 
and corporations and, and industries, including the entertainment industry, have become enforcers of what is acceptable and what isn't. But at the same time, as I look at how quickly this came into place, I have to remind myself that there's, there's an immutable law of the universe, which is things that go up quickly tend to come down just as quickly. So I'm, I'm feeling like maybe we're, we're going to be okay. We just, uh, just have to ride out the insanity until uh, this thing has been crashed into the ground, and then, then we can focus on building whatever comes next. If that sounds pessimistic, I mean for it to sound actually very optimistic that there's an end to the madness. But I guess I should also point out, you know, we're not the first people in human history to make the kind of mistakes that are being made right now. And I'm talking at a societal and cultural level. It's not just politics. It's, it's how our culture views the world. I strongly recommend, if you, if you can find a copy of it, an anthropologist by the name of J.D. Unwin wrote a study back in the 1930s. I believe 1935 is when it was published. It was called Sex and Civilization. Yeah, that title should have it flying right off the shelves, right? Well, what he did was he studied 85 different civilizations, and I'm talking ancient to modern civilizations, all different sizes. I mean, everything from the Greeks, the Romans, the Sumerians, down to little South Sea or South Pacific Islander civilizations. 85 of them he studied, and there was a common thread that he found in every single one of these civilizations. And that was when the time came that people valued pleasure above everything else. And that could mean more than just simply, you know, sexual pleasure. That could mean, you know, they valued entertainment or, or intoxication or whatever it may be. When that became the prime goal of their lives, to pursue pleasure, I guess hedonism would be another way of putting it. That's when their cultures went into decline, without exception, every single one of them. Their creative energies were diverted into things that wasted their energy and and essentially just led them to stagnation and eventually into decline, some of them into collapse. Now, does that sound like I'm portending doom for us? I guess maybe. It might sound that way to some people, but the idea is when people practiced what he called... uh, uh, marital continence or, or fidelity. He, by the way, he wasn't approaching this from the from the standpoint of you know I'm a, I'm a minister out there to show that those that obeyed the scriptures you know did well and those that didn't you know did poorly. He knew he wasn't trying to make any moral judgment whatsoever. He was simply looking at the facts of when pleasure seeking took precedence over everything else. That's when civilizations went into decline. So in that regard, I can say that I have a little bit of gratitude for Hollywood for providing a very uh, important reference point to where we can see just how far our, our culture and our society has declined. Basically, it works like this. If it's popular in Hollywood, it's, uh, it's probably not such a great thing. You look at what Hollywood celebrates, you look at the kinds of things that are celebrated through uh, not just their films, but also through their lifestyles and the, the, uh, the, the way that they live uh, their lives, what, what, what their priorities are. And it's pretty clear that, yeah, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of what, uh, what religious folks would call wickedness going on there. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, we should all step up and, you know, go over to Hollywood and, and get these people whipped into shape. I don't think it's my job to change them. What I can do, though, is I can limit the impact that they have on my life by limiting my consumption of what Hollywood's producing. More importantly, 
If I'm concerned about wickedness coming into this world, by my own choices, I can prevent it from entering the world through me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com. Also, Pure Light, that's pure-light.com, the most innovative light bulbs you have ever seen in your life, and MonticelloCollege.org. Now, I have a link to every one of these sponsors in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I, I hear a lot of talk these days about uh, what are we going to do about the police problem. In fact, uh, there are some people, believe it or not, who are willing to go out there and riot night after night after night to make their point. Perhaps you've heard of this. Okay, just just putting some perspective on this. What do people do when it comes to addressing police problems? And here's here's the thing. I'm looking at the news, and, and what I see is every time there is a police-involved shooting, it's becoming a flashpoint for new protests across the country. Almost as if there are people just waiting for the next one so that they have an excuse to either protest or, in some cases, to riot. Now, the, the mantra, will defund the police, that's, that's what some people see as the solution. And if I can be fair in this, there are problems with over-policing. There are problems with the way that uh, the policing is being used by the state to serve the interests of the state rather than the interests of the public from which the state gets its legitimate powers. So if, if, if it's, uh, I, I know this is going to seem to some people, Brian, you have one foot in two different canoes and they're headed in different directions. Yeah, it feels that way sometimes. But without embracing, you know, the Marxist uh, approach of Black Lives Matter, I think we can safely admit, yes, there are some serious problems with policing. At the same time, I don't think that uh, expropriating people's uh, property and and burning property and destroying property, beating people and demanding, you know, reparations is the answer either. So what's the most likely solution? Well, let's turn to Ron Paul, who says the solution is to embrace liberty. He says many Americans saw former policeman Derek Chauvin's conviction on all counts last week as affirming the principle that no one is above the law. Many others were concerned that the jury was scared that anything less than a full conviction would result in riots and even violence against themselves and their families. He asks, was the jury's verdict influenced by politicians and media figures who were calling for the jury to deliver the, quote, right verdict? Attempts to intimidate juries are just as offensive to the rule of law as suggestions that George Floyd's criminal record somehow meant his rights were not important. Ron Paul says the video of then-policeman Chauvin restraining Floyd led people across the political and ideological spectrums to consider police reform. Now, he says, sadly, there have also been riots across the country orchestrated by left-wing activists and organizations seeking to exploit concern about police misconduct to advance their agendas. He says it's ironic to see self-described Marxists, progressives, and other leftists protesting violence by government agents. After all, their ideology rests on the use of force to compel people to obey politicians and bureaucrats. But he says it's also ironic to see those who claim to want to protect and improve black lives support big government. Ron Paul says black people, along with other Americans, have had their family structure weakened by welfare policies encouraging single parenthood. 
This results in children being raised without fathers as a regular presence in their lives, increasing the likelihood the children will grow up to become adults with emotional and other problems. Those at the bottom of the economic ladder are restrained in improving their situation because of minimum wage laws, occupational licensing regulations, and other government interference in the marketplace. He says they're also victims of the Federal Reserve's inflation tax. Now, many progressives who claim to believe that black lives matter don't care that there's a relatively high abortion rate of black babies. These so-called pro-choice progressives are the heirs of the racists who founded the movement to legalize and and normalize abortion. The drug war, he says, is a major reason police have increasingly looked and acted like an occupying army. Police militarization threatens everyone's liberty. Black people have been subjected to drug war arrests and imprisonment at relatively high rates. Those interested in protecting and enhancing black people's and all people's lives should embrace liberty. He says libertarians reject the use of force to achieve political, economic, or social goals. Therefore, in a libertarian society, police would only enforce laws prohibiting the initiation of force against persons or property. A libertarian society would leave the provision of aid to the needy to local communities, private charities, and religious organizations. Unlike the federal welfare state, private charities can provide effective and compassionate aid without damaging family structure or making dependency a way of life. In a libertarian society, individuals could pursue economic opportunity free of the burdens of government regulations and taxes, as well as free of the Federal Reserve's fiat currency. So in summary, free markets, individual liberty, limited government, sound money, and peace are all keys to achieving prosperity and social cohesion. Those sincerely concerned about improving all human lives should turn away from the teaching of Karl Marx and John Maynard Keynes, who advocated expansive government power, and instead embrace the ideas of pro-liberty writers like Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard. Now, I agree with him 100% on this, but I'm also going to admit getting people to pick up and read anything written by von Mises or by Rothbard, it's tough. Who has time, right? Nobody really has time to sit down and read, but those were two of the the greater uh, defenders and and, uh, people who could expound on what it means to live in a culture of liberty. Good stuff. One final thing here, and that is we're going to add a word to your vocabulary. It might already be there, but expropriation is the word. I've heard the word. I kind of understand what it means. You know, I've always heard it, and, well, I didn't really steal it. I just expropriated it. Wink, wink. So it's kind of an official way of of taking property from others. And Charles Hugh Smith has this eye-opening explanation of how what's yours is now mine in America's era of accelerating expropriation of our private property. He also has some suggestions about what we can do about it. Just want to touch on this briefly. Expropriation is dispossessing the populace of property and property rights via the legal and financial overreach of monetary and political authorities. So all expropriations are pernicious, he says, but the most destructive is the expropriation of labor's value, while the excessive gains of unproductive speculation accrue to the elite that owns most of the nation's wealth. And he says, in a nation in which the leadership has finally honed the art and artifice of legalized looting and financial ledger domain, 
it's not surprising that the expropriation of labor's value takes many forms. And these are just a couple of them. Proliferating junk fees for permits, licenses, renewals, applications, late fees, penalties, fines for violating obscure regulations. Never mind if you're losing money. By definition, as a business owner, you're rich and you deserve petty expropriations. If you're Amazon, however, well, then we'll shower you with subsidies and tax breaks. Secondly, there's sky-high liability insurance, disability insurance, workers' compensation insurance, because all the fraud and friction in these systems add expense, and you're the one who'll pay for it all. Add to that sky-high rent, taxes on wages. In fact, consider the self-employed in a high-tax state. You know, a 15.3% federal employment tax on wages up to 142000 Then add federal tax rates that quickly reach 32% and up and state taxes that hit 10% and higher in high-tax states. Oh, and don't forget the extra 3.9% Medicare tax above 125000 And when we add it all up, the total tax rate will exceed 61%. He says, you want to quibble? Okay, how about make it 55%? How much difference does that make? None. Inflation is another form of stealth expropriation, and like all expropriation, we're told it's for our own good, just like any other beating delivered by authorities. So as the feds push asset inflation to Mars and whines that real inflation isn't high enough yet, the self-employed in a high-tax state are experiencing a monthly expropriation of the purchasing power of what little labor value has been left to them. So here's the takeaway. He says, any wealth denominated in financial instruments will be expropriated by one means or another. Yes, that could mean your retirement fund. So wealth has to be denominated in other currency, social, cultural, skills, intellectual, that's beyond the grasp of monetary and political authorities. This is the primary reason why crazy, risky speculation is pursued with such intensity. There is no way to escape the grinding impoverishment of expropriation. The takeaway here is earn as little money as possible and invest your surplus labor in assets that cannot be expropriated from you. Develop low overhead gigs and enterprises that are 100% yours so you can legitimately write off expenses and control how much work you decide to take on. He says keep accurate records and pay whatever taxes are due, but by minimizing net income, those taxes should be modest. How crazy is that, right? But it makes sense. Instead, he says, invest your best self, time, and energy in assets that can't be assessed, taxed, or expropriated. Your skills, networks, the value you create, and invest in your own self-sufficiency, sharing, and good living of the kind that can't be bought, sold, or expropriated. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. Definitely worth checking out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.